0: Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by
1: WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. Now, here's the hosts of WP Tonic, Jonathan Dinwood and John Locke. Welcome to WP Tonic episode 180 to do and today our main topic we're going to be talking working with a designer or a developer both sides of the table but before we get into today's topic i want to give a big thanks to our sponsor liquid web while liquid web's best been known as a managed hosting company with tons of options recently they've designed a managed wordpress offering that's perfect for mission critical sites so if you're looking for improved performance maximized uptime and incredible support Liquid Web is the hosting partner you've been looking for. Now, every Liquid Web managed WordPress customer also has iThemeSync integrated right into their management portal, allowing them to update several sites with a single touch. So if you sign up today using the discount code WPtonic33, you'll get 33% off the next six months of your hosting. Visit liquidweb.com slash wordpress today to get started and use that code WPtonic33. And with that, we're going to let the panel introduce themselves. We're going to start with our guest, Nick. Nick, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, where you're from.
2: Uh, I'm from Dallas, Texas. I am the lead developer at a company called Primer Co., um, which is just a web design and development agency.
1: Excellent. And then also in the house, we've got
0: our esteemed guest, Morton. Hey, I'm a senior staff instructor at LinkedIn Learning and have opinions. Yes, you do. <laughs> and then, then we've got our uh, longtime panelist, a great
1: dear friend of the show, Kim.
3: Hi, I'm Kim Cheveller. I'm a teacher, speaker, uh, teaching business and technology.
4: And then my beloved co-host, Jonathan Oh, hi there, folks. I'm the founder of WP Tonic. We're a maintenance security support company. We only deal with WordPress. We're your trusted partner, aren't we, John? Definitely.
1: And I'm John Locke. My business is Lockdown Design, providing custom WordPress development and local SEO for blue collar businesses. Before we head into our main topic, we've got two WordPress news stories. And the first of them is written by our guest, Morton. The end of the eighty twenty, and the future of WordPress. Morton, take it away. Break it down, what you're talking about here. Right. So,
0: you know that guy, Matt?
1: Yeah, I've heard
0: of him. (laughs) Yeah, I've heard of him. Sometimes he says stuff in comment sections on blogs, and you go, wait, what? What did you just say and that happened on friday um so on friday matt in a comment section about the uh and a wp tavern article about the uproar over the redesign of the plugin directory on wordpress.org um there was some discussion in the comments about how when the redesign happened the development team and the design team kept saying we're going to do this with user centric design and we're going to you know test this on actual user before we do anything and then there were a bunch of people that gave feedback none of which was listened to and then the original design got published into the system and then matt responded by saying quote it might be time to retire an 8020 sorry it might be time to retire 8020 from the philosophy page as it's seldom used as intended now, for those uh, who don't know what 8020 is, uh, on the WordPress philosophy page, so the philosophy page for how WordPress is developed, it says, let's see, <clears throat> uh, I have to find it here. The rule of thumb is that the core should provide features that 80% or more of end users will actually appreciate and use. If the next version of WordPress comes with a feature that the majority of users immediately want to turn off or think they'll never use, we've blown it if we stick to the 80% principle, then that should never happen. Um, The 80-20 principle is this weird principle that's used in business in different ways. Um, And the way WordPress uses it, like this particular interpretation of it is actually kind of unusual. But the sentiment behind it is, Really important and quite valid that if you're building something for a mass of users you should really try to build solutions that work for the majority of those users and don't add in things that don't that are not used by the majority now In the case of WordPress, uh, there are many 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 situations where the argument has risen that a feature that's included or a feature that's excluded or something like that or a design decision that's made is not made in consideration of the 80% of users or even the 20% of users, but more like the 1% or the 1% of the 1% of users, because WordPress is developed by the people who develop WordPress. And they're open source contributors who tend to just develop things that they need right now. An example of that would be something like the video playlist feature inside WordPress. I don't know if anyone uses that feature, but it's in core. Um, and not only is it in core, but if you want to use it, you have to hack it to get it to work with anything other than a very, very narrow use case. Um, another thing is how um, Post Formats got included. Um, the reason why Post Formats UI never got through was because Matt literally shut down the project when he realized the lack of user testing resulted in a solution people didn't understand. And when they did some very low level user testing, they realized. If we ship this, people will stop using WordPress because it's too confusing. Um, So in my article, I'm asking a question. I'm not posing a solution, I'm simply asking a question. What is the philosophy that we want to run running forward? Because right now on the philosophy page it says we're designing for the 80%. The reality is we don't have any numbers or information or any project in the the works to get that information. So we can't say that we're designing for the 80% because no one knows what the 80% is. We have no way of testing things against the 80%. It's basically just uh, words that don't have any meaning. Um, On the other hand, if we retire the 80-20% principle and just say, no, we're just gonna design for the people who contribute, that is a very strong uh, statement that we're designing for the contributors, not for the end users. And no matter how much the contributors might say, no, no, we're designing for the users. The reality is you're not because you can't design for the users if you don't know what the users are doing. And right now we don't. So it this comment by Matt, uh, combined with a bunch of other things he said and a bunch of other things other people have said just brought to head this thing that's been going on for a long time. And I just wanted to crystallize it so people understand there are two ways of going forward here. And we have to Actively make a choice. We can't just pretend that one thing is happening when it's not or just push it down. So uh, at the end I Mentioned my telemetry proposal, which is the proposal to simply get WordPress to gather telemetry on how it's used This is what's done with pretty much all other software just to get some use data Um, We've talked about that here before I believe Um, and the telemetry telemetry proposal was shut down by Matt And every time I bring it up, he keeps saying, no, we're not going to do that. And there's a huge movement in the WordPress community, including core developers, who really want telemetry. So I don't know why it's like, I I haven't heard a reason why it's been shut down other than it's not a priority right now. Um, I would like to hear a reason why. Um, there might be a totally legitimate reason, it might be competition, it might be some strategic decision making, it might be simply, we don't want to design for the end user because the end user, if we just take the full mass of WordPress, the majority user is actually not the target audience we want. But that has to be explicitly stated. We can't pretend we're doing one thing and doing something else. Okay, end rant. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's a lot of things that, that that I agree with this. I don't understand why there's such an opposition by Matt to telemetry. I don't think it would hurt anything. Uh, I don't think it would be that hard to uh, implement, but it's obviously something that they're opposed to. We don't know the reasons why, but um, just like even in our last episode, we were talking to uh, you know, Jonathan Courtney who does UX for global brands and and the thing of it is, is once you, if you try and design stuff like out of your head, like, you know, with user personas and all these things, it might not line up with the real users, how they actually use the product or, or what they actually do. And it would be good to have that information, considering 27% of the web is now being powered by WordPress. I think mm-hmm. if you wanna grow it, you know, bigger. Um it would be good to you know see how the users actually use the product wordpress. Uh, Nick any any thoughts on this?
2: Um, no I think that's. I think we definitely should be testing for the end user. I th- I don't understand why you would be shutting that down in general. I mean I think it would be a good thing to be doing that. So I mean I really don't understand the reasoning behind that at all.
0: So Uh, Just to be clear, no one explicitly says that. I'm just saying the lack of any kind of discussion about it makes that implied.
2: Right. No, I totally get what you're saying.
0: Kim, thoughts? Absolutely agreed. It was
3: a great article, Morton. I really enjoyed that article. Um, I, I absolutely agree. And of course my customer base is the end user. I've, I don't work with developers other than when I work with developers, it's developers who need to understand the business use case of building a platform for the end user. But my customers are the end user. And so I agree with the telemetry and I really think if WordPress wants to keep growing, we've got to focus on those end users. It's big enough now that, you know, My background in corporate, like when I was part of an IBM team, you know, we had product managers and they went to the customer and they worked with the customer, brought it back to development. And WordPress is kind of at that growing pain point. I think they, to go to the next level, have to bring something, doesn't have to be that formal, but something like that in where we understand the end user, the customer's problem and build a solution that we make sure is addressing that.
0: I mean, I, I teach a class at a, mm-hmm. a at a polytechnic here in town, and I've been brought in specifically to teach uh, user-centered design, and um, and I make them go through this huge process, right? Of define like figuring out who the target audience is, and then figuring out what their goals and needs and uh, hindrances and everything is, and then going out and interviewing them, and then you know making a strategy and making personas and making all these things, right? Mm-hmm. And this is how it's done. Like, this is how you design products for real people is you go out and talk to those people because you know you're not those people. You know way too much about the technology to be those people. And when I ask questions like, who is the target audience for this new feature? Or do we have a persona that we're designing towards? The answer is always, uh, no, 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 you're distracting from what we're talking about here. We're trying to make it work. So the focus is very much on, you know, I have a great idea. Let's put tons of resources into building that idea. And it's, it's you know, in a user-centered design approach, that's the end part of the process. And my concern is um, if we keep going the way we're doing now, there's a good chance that we'll keep running into the same situation we had with the Pulse Format's UI, just instead of it being pulled by Matt, it'll be included into the application. So basically what'll happen is a ton of work will be done on some sort of feature that developers think is needed, and they'll have 100% uh, valid reasons for thinking. So it's done, with uh, the intent of improving WordPress, but because there's no data to prove that it actually makes sense for the end user, you might end up in a situation where you build something that makes sense for a small group, but actually hinders the, the majority of users or confuses them in some way. And if a lot of work is done on that project without any user testing, it'll be very hard to pull at the end because there's such a heavy investment from volunteers in building it. That it's very hard to say. Actually, all that work you did, we need to scrap it because it doesn't work. Um, an example of that right now is the Gutenberg editor project that's happening. So they're going to redesign the entire WordPress editor. The level, like the the quality of the Gutenberg editor um, prototype. In my opinion is way too high there's way too much work being done on making the prototype perfect before it's been tested against real users so what will likely happen is once it gets put in front of users it'll be very hard for the development team if they get feedback that says actually we don't understand this because there's such an enormous investment in the development and the design of that thing that anything that comes back and says it doesn't work you'll encounter this um, cognitive dissonance where you go, well, the reason why you can't figure it out is because you don't know enough or because it's not clear or because you don't see it in context or because you haven't used it enough rather than saying, oh, uh, maybe this wasn't the problem that needed to be fixed or maybe we approached it the wrong way or maybe we should have, you know, added other features to it. None of that exists right now. And it's not, it's not even criticism of the team. It's criticism of the process that our development process in WordPress is not user-centered. And it's it's established itself now to such an extent that when you bring up user-centered processes, people will actively fight you on doing that because they say, you know, we don't need to do that much research. It takes too much time, it takes too many resources, or volunteers won't do it because it's too, you know, that's not what they want to work on, or we don't have the money for it or the time or something like that, and it's just not responsible. When we shipped stuff for WordPress, we're shipping it to millions of users. We have, a, we have a duty of care to make sure that those users get what they need and that we don't break their personal blogs or their businesses or anything else by introducing interactions that don't make any sense to them. Here's an idea
1: that just occurred to me like when, when you were saying all this is, if this was not an open source project, would the design process be being
0: run this way at all? If, if, no, no I don't, I don't think no, so. Either. because people <laughs> would be paid. So some boss at the top could say, actually, you know, you team over here, you're responsible for doing research on this. And then they'll be like, I don't want to do this. And then he'll be like, well, that's fine. I can just not pay you. And then other people will come and do that job for you. Right. The, the problem here is either we need to bring in contributors who actually want to do user research, or we have to establish a process that says, before we do anything, you you have to prove it. You have to prove this idea that it makes sense to the end user. Even if that takes a ton of time, you have to do it, because that's a responsible thing to do.
1: Now, well said. Um,
4: our other news story- uh, can, today... I, can I say something? Oh, yeah, I'm
1: <laughs> sorry. Don't <laughs> let me run you over,
4: go ahead. Well. Um, I agree a lot what Morton said. Obviously, getting data, um, you think that would be a non-brainer and you would be, unless there was some strong argument why that wouldn't be a good thing to do, you you would be puzzled. Um, when it comes to rapid design, really uh Morton, you really should listen to the last episode of w p. Tonic with john Jonathan Courtney and um I think you uh, would find it really interesting because I think some of the um processes around um the design process that you've outlined are really totally contradicted by Jonathan, Jonathan. Um, the other thing I'm going to be the devil's advocate here um, also folks you should go to episode 169 and listen to our interview with AJ Morrison and Chris Lemmer and I was Chris strongly pointed out to me Morton that mm-hmm. That um, it, this isn't a this this is a benign dictatorship we're dealing with here, and if you don't want to be in the playground, you don't have to be there. And Chris basically, um, and I think John would agree with that, strongly pointed that in his in in the way that he could only do could he John. Yeah, definitely. And, and I was
1: thinking about that too, um, that, that, that same thing saying like, if, if you don't want to be in the ecosystem and if you don't want to accept the rules, then find another ecosystem or do your own thing. But in a way, I think that a lot of people are sometimes penalized, not just in WordPress, but like in any, in, in many different, like, you know, environments, workplaces or different things. When you care too much, about something and you try and like change it for the better. Sometimes you're actually slapped down and penalized. And, and, but I, I do think that this needs to be done because uh, it can't just be on a whim of whatever the developers want to do or the contributors want to do, but that's basically who, who makes things go forward in, in WordPress, but
0: it's mine. hold, hold on, hold on. What are you talking about? First of all, Benevolent dictatorship is nonsense. There are tons of examples in WordPress of Matt saying, we're not doing this and it happening anyway, right? And Matt is not a dictator. He's more like a safety valve. When things go totally off the chain, then he's like, stop, stop, stop. This is not working, right? The the idea that this is a de- benevolent dictatorship is a very dangerous one because it, it provides... Um, cushion for people to say, well, you know, we can't change because, no, that's not how this works at all, right? This is the people who develop WordPress are the people that are in charge of WordPress. Anytime we say there's a benevolent dictatorship, we're just building up this ridiculous notion that there is. It's not. I'm sorry. The other th- thing is the idea that if we say, well, if you don't want to play a part, like if you don't want to play by the rules, then get out. You can't say that because there are millions and millions of people who use WordPress every day who don't have a say. They just use it because they've been told it's the best platform. To say that they then have to submit to some sort of rule set that is changed arbitrarily or not followed is not responsible. It's crazy. That's the whole point that you can't say we follow the 80-20 rule. Then you don't follow the 80-20 rule. Then at some point people go, actually, no, we don't follow this. We're just going to scrap it. All the while, millions of people around the world use the platform thinking, I'm safe using WordPress. WordPress will have my back at all times. Those are the people we need to care about. Those people don't care who's in charge. They just want to make sure the platform works for them and they're screwed if we start messing with it without understanding what they use it for. So, yeah, sure, on a high level, you know, I am an integrated developer that always works in WordPress. These discussions are interesting, and we can say, you know, oh, you need to submit to whatever rule is there. And da, da, da. in reality, though, we are building for people who are not part of this community, who will never be part of this community, who just used a tool. We, if we really, the attitude really is, either follow the rules or get out. Then we need to explicitly say that this platform was developed for the people who build it. If you choose to use it, that is your responsibility and your risk to take. That's not how we sell WordPress. That's not how we should sell WordPress. That's not how WordPress works. Seriously. See, I have opinions. Yes. <laughs> Thoughts?
4: I, I, I think he's uh, Morton. Eric, he to put, I was just being the devil's advocate anyway, John. So um, should we go Should we go to, to our the main, the main topic? Go yeah, for our main, break and then go for the yeah, main, topic, main topic, John. Okay. Sounds
1: great. When we come back, we're going to be talking with our WordPress panel about our main topic, which is both sides of the aisle. If you're a designer, how do you work with the developer? If you're a developer, how do you work with the designer? And we'll be talking that when we come back after the commercial break. You want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up to date, so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with full, no question asked, 30-day money-back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's wp-tonic.com, just
0: like the podcast.
1: Coming back from the break, and now we're into our main topic: working with a designer or developer. Um, I want to ask Nick. I um, mean, you work uh, in a in a small agency. You're a developer. You work with a designer. When you, in the days before, like you guys formed this agency. Kind of, did you work with other designers, and and how was that relationship? And how did you guys form a process now to where you guys work like in cohesion?
2: So in the early days, uh, when we were using Photoshop, and I, my the first when I first got into all of this, I was working um, at an internship at uh, it was still a small company, it was about eight to ten people in Southlake, um, and it was all virtual. So any designers that I'd be working with, I didn't really have a lot of communication with other than just delivery, um, which did make some things different, uh, difficult just because I'd be getting, you know, different, very unorganized files from, from some people and, uh, you know, stuff that was just, it would add time to my plate just based on who I was working with. Um. So throughout that process of, of working with people like that and then moving on to my next job where um, I'd be actually like working hand-in-hand hand with somebody where I could like discuss, you know, hey, this is what I would prefer, you know, the way you're designing is, you know, to adding more time to, to my plate and stuff like that. Um, it it kind of – it you really just got to get into the flow with somebody, I guess, and just kind of like – because I guess everybody, everybody works differently. So like I've gotten into – a good flow with uh, Hunter, which is uh, our lead designer at Primer. Um, And like everything we do is like rapid now, just because now we switched over from Photoshop to sketch, um, which has made life a lot easier. And we've just got like a really good flow down with, you know, him just delivering sketch files. Our process is just wireframing. So before when we initially started, we didn't do any wireframing at all. We would just design it, get it approved. I would build it. Now our process has transformed into we kind of get like a rough design sketch going. He builds like a high fidelity, uh, wireframe and uh, sketch. I'll build that. And then as I'm building that, he'll also get into his design process. So basically that just, it just expedites the entire process because I'll basically have the entire layout built by the time he actually delivers the design. So flow like that, uh, has helped us a lot. Um, from, from getting the ball rolling, especially from the early days when it was taking us, you know, two months to get a design built out. So.
1: One thing that, that I want to ask you too, like when, when you're kind of building out the designs, do you guys have a lot of discussion about what each thing means? Like in the design, as far
2: as the functionality,
1: like it, it, like say you have like a thing, like what does this actually do? You
2: know? Oh those- yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we have like, Before we even like get into the actual design process of of him even laying out the page, we'll just kind of discuss, you know, what elements are going to be on the page. Why are they going to be on the page? You know, kind of talk to the client and see what their expectations are um, from that and then give recommendations from there. Um, But yeah, no, every time we, we do anything like that, we always ask, you know, why and basically just dumb it down to the simplest level, you know, like less is more always. So like, We always try to like, if we, if there's absolutely no reason to, you know, have it there, then like, we're just not going to put it there. But that's, we kind of just try to dumb it down to the, you know, the simplest point where the client can still understand what we're trying to do. um, But it's just as straightforward as possible at that point.
1: Kim, I want to ask you, um, you know, in your experience, like have you worked with designers or developers and, and, how do they uh, bridge the gap of speaking different languages? You know, what what are your personal experiences with that?
3: Um, I love what what you were saying there, as far as the wireframing and all. I think the the issues I have seen are when you don't have some kind of process like that. A lot of times there's a complete breakdown, right? We have developers who are completely into jargon land and they know what they can do. We have designers who build this beautiful idea and it's kind of like if you, you know, be old school, go back to when I went to college a long time ago. It's kind of like architects and structural engineers, right? The architect would build this beautiful thing and those structural engineers like, that's nice. I can't make it stand up. So it was, you know, always finding the, the, uh, and what I do now with corporate teams is helping them find that, getting through the jargon and finding a process. In this case, it's wireframing. In the cases I'm with, it tends to be more of taking the problem solution from customer through, um, but finding whichever process that is, whatever communication style and adaptations to styles that need to happen in order to make the connection and and have a connection that can um, th- that can work well. Also, you know, I have to say in my experiences most of mine have been much bigger teams. So not just one, you know, you are good at what you do and you're also obviously good at finding a designer that you guys can connect with and build that process. I a lot of times was building with, you know, there's 20 people on this team and there's 20 people on this team and they're trying to mesh the whole thing. And that was when it really got more confusing and we, would, we'll, we will go into full out communication styles, breaking down the jargon, making sure we're understanding it with each person and then building that process and that gap or filled, to fill the gap.
1: Something you said that I want to key on uh, just for a second is, you know, breaking down the jargon. Both both designers and developers kind of have their own jargon. Like, what are some steps that, that teams can take to to kind of communicate better with each other and understand each other's uh, terminology?
3: Um, first is to just accept that we have it, right? understand that just because I say something to someone else, actually this happened to me on a call with one of my coaches the other day. I was talking about a piece of software and I said, that's kludgy as hell. She's not a technical person at all. She's a business coach. Actually, she's my speaking coach. And she's like, what the heck is a kludgy? (laughs) And I I just, Oh, sorry. You know, geeks speak software talk. So the first thing is knowing that we have it and starting to dig through what was built around us that say, you know, we don't want to share. We don't like that person. If we come to it as if we, if we build this together, we're going to give something better to our customer. Then we can start putting those together and breaking it down.
1: Absolutely. Some I want to ask Morton um, at pink and yellow, you know and and you're kind of like a hybrid like you know designer developer, but when you're when you guys are putting together uh sites you know how did you evolve your process of of communicating between designers and and developers, and how did that handoff um in working together process kind of evolve
0: it's um it depends very much on the project so uh, pink and Elo is actually just two people uh and, it's uh, a producer and me, so we. Our, our scope is beyond just websites. We do a lot of weird stuff too. Uh, so what what I often do is bring in outside developers uh, or outside designers to, to do specific things. Like so, you know, I design a lot of stuff, but I have a style. And not everyone likes my style so i'll go out and find other designers who are more in tune with whatever the client wants um in the beginning i would just say you know here's the spec for the thing i want kind of a f- something and then the designer would throw stuff back at me and i would just build it um but over time i realized that doesn't work so we started a much more inclusive process where we would work with the um, clients and then uh map out exactly what they need, not just what they think they need, but what they actually need, and then do wireframing and user testing on the wireframes and build some very simple prototypes, uh, usually just HTML prototypes or very basic uh, WordPress sites, and then send that to the designer and say, okay, so these are the components that go together. This is how they look in mobile version and other things. And I want you to you know build a look to this. And now we've gotten to the point where we start all the way back with, uh, mood boards and, and and walk through this quite extensive design process so that by the time the design is done, the development is done as well because a majority of the design now happens in the browser. Um, we've, we've tried to move away from designing in Photoshop or Illustrator or anything because that's not where the thing lives, it lives in the browser. So I try to get designers who are competent enough in front end so css html and maybe some javascript to be able to cobble together what they want it to look like and then they can hand it to me and then i can tear it apart and build it to work better and integrate it into wordpress um, and clean up the code but i know exactly what it was the designer intended to do that's only possible because i've made a very very strong effort to learn the language of all the parties involved um, so I can speak to a UX designer, I can speak to an information architect, I can speak to just a graphic designer and a developer and a backend developer and augment my language to fit with whatever they want and and know at all times what their goals and needs are so that the communication I can basically talk to a designer and then go and talk to a back-end developer and communicate what the designer wants in a way that the developer understands. Um by associating what the designer wants with what the developer's goals are, right? Um, that process, I almost think is akin to what happens in hospitals, right? If you go to a, an emergency room and you have some sort of major emergency where there's you know, a person that comes in with many types of injuries at the same time who requires a team of different people to work on, um, you'll often see there's a human being in the room who's not, in, who's not like scrubbed in, who's standing in the back of the room and yelling at everyone all the time. That's the emergency room communicator that basically says, okay, this team over here does this one thing. This team over here does the other thing. Sometimes they have to coordinate and then that's the coordinator that's standing in the back and going, okay, so you stop because these other people need to do something. And I know that you want to do this thing, but this is actually more important. And I'm making that decision right now back off or saying these people keep saying that thing. That means you need to do this other thing, right? So you have this glue that just makes sure the communication happens and that's, probably what we all need to get better at i
1: agree like the communication seems to be like the 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 biggest obstacle when um you know designers and developers work together and that's something we'll talk about in just a second but right now i want to ask jonathan you know in your experience when it when it comes to communicating you know because you coordinate uh, like a lot of stuff like you have different like players um that you work with and when it comes to coordinating, like, uh, communication between designers and developers, you know, in your experience, uh, what are the uh, obstacles or pitfalls that, that happen? And, and uh, what are your thoughts on on process?
4: Well, it kind of really vary, varies upon the scale of the project, doesn't it? And um, I've been thinking about it quite a bit since our last interview with, 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 with Jonathan, Really, I don't know if you've been thinking about that interview, John, Because, but I did find it quite enlightening about a lot of the processes which the industry kind of holds sacred in a way. And um, that interview, Jonathan, showed me that basically a lot of these processes could be quickened quite considerably by working... With the client, if you have got a client who who's up for it, you could really develop something much more rapidly in a much more intense sprint. Did that make any sense, John? Yeah, it totally made sense. Um,
1: something that I want to share, um, because I I have done like a lot of uh, subcontract work for. Larger agencies where their specialty might be branding or design. Uh, lots of different people, like on the East Coast, not on the West Coast. I don't know why. Don't ask me. But um, and they all kind of have a similar language and and in, in kind of um, way that they set up. I've been blessed pretty much because people are usually pretty good about um, it, uh, grouping like their f- Photoshop files or or if it's Sketch or, or if we're doing it in Vision. Envision is actually pretty good. Uh, very useful for me. Um, but one thing that, that, that I've, I've kind of found is a lot of time, um, as you go deeper into a relationship, when you're working with somebody that that's more designery and you're more the developer, there is like a lot of uh, questions that come up of like, you know, what is this supposed to do? How, you know, um, how do you want this to be? Because when you're just looking at a visual representation, it, you can kind of fill in some of the blanks, but the communication is is really uh, imperative. And a lot of times when people are like handing stuff off to you like it is a subcontract, uh, you're not always clued in because uh, they might be talking with the clients. You're not part of that conversation as much. So one thing that I've implemented recently a lot is... Uh, doing a design handoff call and and i said like you know to all my different people like hey this is just something that we need to do um so like if i have any questions they can get answered and that'll just save us time like in the long run uh but another thing like what we were talking about like the language the designers have and developers have is, is so different. And it took me a while to kind of like pick up on some of that stuff, you know, like uh, people say like, like right rail, uh, left rail, that's usually like a sidebar. They'll say like overview page. that's usually like an archive page. It's just how my, my works like different than that. Um, But moving on, I want to ask the panel, there is a debate that I've seen uh, a lot online In the last few years and it goes a little something like this it goes like should designers learn to code and uh, because again it's that attempt to for both sides of the aisle to feel like they're being understood and a lot of times the response is kind of like well should developers learn to design which Mm -hmm. I think both both should and both is that but there seems to have emerged kind of a confrontational attitude of, of like you're either in one tribe or the other and like, you know, whose job is more important. And and my question to Nick is, uh, you know, what have you observed about this kind of philosophical uh, question and, and what can both sides learn from uh, learning a little bit about what the other side does?
2: Well, I think it is important at some level to understand both sides of the aisle. I think if you're a designer, I think I think it's probably more beneficial on the designer's side to learn code, at least a little bit of HTML front end and, and CSS stuff. Cause like, especially since I've been working with Hunter, like I've always, I've been trying to convince him to try and learn front end stuff, not only to help me, but also we can, we can have those conversations where it's like, all right, like, he knows H1 through H6. Like, he understands that type of stuff. Um, and he, he did start learning a lot of it. So, and, like, as soon as he started understanding the terminology, all the stuff that I was talking about, like, you know, hover states, and, like, when it really comes down to, like, the nitty-gritty stuff like that, um, he now understands, like, he already knows what questions I'm going to be asking because he understands it at a very high level. Um, and then on, from my perspective as a developer, like the, you know, the change from Photoshop when I initially started, which, you know, to me was questionable anyway, I was like, wait, why are we using Photoshop? I had to learn basically how to use Photoshop at that point. Um, and then he was like, wait a minute, we're going to switch over to sketch. I'm like, Oh, okay. What is that? You know, like, (laughs) why are we doing that? And I, from my perspective, I had to understand vector, you know, base design and, why would, why would we be doing that? SVGs and stuff like that. So it all co-mingles a lot. I think from both sides of the aisle, it's very beneficial to have at least a high level of what's going on when you, you, know, when you either receive the design or whenever you pass it on.
1: No, definitely. Uh, have you found uh, by each you and a uh, hunter, like learning a little bit about each other's stuff, like the, the whole process is accelerated uh, like designing stuff is and, and getting like into production, like a working site is, is much quicker. And- oh
2: yeah, definitely. Yeah. We're, we're able now to to bang out a site very fast just because one sketch, I feel like sketch has extre- has definitely expedited our entire process just because you know, you could copy a lot of the CSS properties straight from sketch, which definitely makes my job easier. Um, And then from his perspective, he's now been able, he can, you know, we just did eight pages yesterday and I already started, you know, developing those out. So it's like, I think once you get a a flow down with the person you're working with, whether that's a subcontractor or, or, you know, whoever you're working with, I think that it's very important to get, an understanding of the terminology down uh, and then just kind of understanding each other's process of like, now he understands that I, you know, the the whole process of it took, it took some, some learning to figure out that wireframes and then the design process would work best because we were like, wait, why do we need to do that? You know? But then we got into that weird time where like, we would be redesigning the site like three times. It's like, wait a minute, that layout's not going to work. And it's like, we already basically have a style guide that we've implemented to the whole site. So we basically have to rework the whole thing. So that process of the wireframing gets approved, me developing it, him designing, design gets approved, I develop that. That has been the quickest way for us to to push a site out.
1: Excellent. Kim, you know, where do you fall on this—the uh, debate of, of how much should developers learn design, and how much should uh, designers learn to develop?
3: I, I think, I think the high level is important for both of them. I think at the basis, absolutely, like we've said, they need to understand there is a different vocabulary and speak it with each other. So, for example, as you mentioned, your he knows his. H ones you have to go into creating it. And, I mean, you know, we had this discussion actually a couple of weeks ago. I even take that all the way out, not just to the developer-designer discussion, but even with the end-user discussion. They may not have to, right? Somebody who just has a, a blog and someone created it and they're just adding their blog post, they're not going to deep, dig deep into HTML and CSS and PHP, but they still need to understand that overall picture of what's going on in the background so that they actually even know who to hire when they need something. They need to understand the difference in developing and designing and and how to work with both of those people. So, yes, I think at least at the high level, both need to understand how to do the other's work and how to at least uh, communicate that need to whomever they need to communicate. And it comes all the way out to that end user.
1: No, I think that's great, uh, uh, Morton. Uh, when it when it comes to this uh, debate of should designers learn to code and should coders learn to desi- design, um, you know, how can this be a productive discussion? And and should there be more kind of exploration of of things just outside our wheelhouse?
0: <laughs> <laughs> the I think the focus specifically on to code is. Uh, Distraction from what we're actually talking about—not in this conversation here, but in general. You know, there's this whole movement about everyone should know how to code, and that's like the new thing that everyone needs. Um, the act of coding is not what we're really talking about. We're talking about understanding how content is structured and why things do thing, why things work, and how they fit together. Um, I think anyone who designs. Now, let me rewind that. If you learn to become a painter, you don't do all your painting in Photoshop and then you hand it off to someone else to paint it on a canvas, right? If you're a photographer, you don't go to photography school and learn how to draw a picture and then hand it to someone else who takes the picture. If you design stuff for the web, you need to know how to actually make it work on the web. Now, It's really important to understand that does not mean you need to be a front end developer, because front end development is taking something in the browser and optimizing it and using perfect code and everything. What I mean is you need to be able to work inside the canvas. The thing you're designing will actually live in, which happens to be the web browser. Um, Now, There's a lot of discussion about, you know, can designers learn to code and, you know, they have the wrong mindset to it and they're the wrong type of person for coding and coding is not built for them. My experience is if you um, introduce coding to a designer in a different way, it's successful 100% of the time, which is to say, bring them in at the content modeling stage. So the content modeling stage is when you say, okay, so here we have these different types of content. We have a page, we have a post, we have a product page, we have whatever. And so in the page, we have a title and the page content and no comments at the bottom. On the post, we have the page, t- the post title and the categories and the meta content and the content itself. And in the content, you might have all these other things. And then you have the comment section and then related posts and all those things. And then for the product page, you have all the different pieces that go into the project. Into the product. Now, all these things need to be saved separately in the database so that they can be pulled in and used individually. And then they need to be structured in a way on the page so that it's a hierarchically, uh, so that they are ordered in a hierarchical uh, way. So that if you just read it from the top, you get the most important information and the second most important, and so on down. Right. Once. If you say that to a designer, they'll be like, okay, I understand, so you know the priority of this thing, because it's on the top and my list needs to be bigger and bolder and everything. And from there, making the analogy, okay, so you want that to be the most important thing. So here, we'll put it into a structured document, it's called an HTML document, just we, so that we put the order the way it's supposed to be. Then you can open this little tab in your browser and start messing with the display of that thing and putting a box around it and floating it off to the side and flexing the elements and everything. Once you take a designer into coding like that and show them that everything you're doing in the browser actually is, has an equivalent in Illustrator or InDesign or whatever it is you're currently using, the only difference is you're typing in the commands instead of explicitly drawing them out. There's this light bulb moment where they go, oh, I actually understand what's going on here. And it's especially true now because we have these modern tools, right? We can do drop shadows and blurs and image filters and rounded corners and even CSS shapes and uh, floating and clearing and flexing and grids and everything. We all have that in the browser. And the browsers even have support tools for it. So once they realize all the things they're used to using exist here, they're just in code format, it becomes much easier for them to work in it. and. Then you can go back and say to the developer, you know how when the designer says, I want this to happen, and you go, whatever, it's too complicated. There's a reason why they're doing that. And if they're part of that conversation of, you know, we have our structured content, we need to make it look a certain way to bring it forward, The developer understands why the design decisions are made the way they are, even if they don't necessarily agree with them or even care, they say, I see why you're doing it like this because you're trying to give this thing preference over this other thing, even though it's halfway down the page. And that gives them a reason to say, oh, so next time we come to a project and say, oh, but why is the price so small here? The last five projects I worked on, the designers always made the price large, right? Then they can have that conversation with the designer. So it, it's a, it's a different kind of conversation. You don't want to learn code for the sake of learning code. You want to learn how this platform works and why it works the way it does, and then figure out how to put it together.
1: A lot of what I'm taking away from from your comment is is basically like the classical artists like learn the materials, like uh, it, before they could carve like a statue, they had to go and pick a piece of marble mm-hmm. It's knowing your materials, Kim? have
3: something. No, I just I, I love the way you put that. I thought that was beautifully said, Jonathan.
1: What what um, can we learn? You know, from from learning designers, developers, or or if we're designers, you know, what can we learn from learning to code?
4: Well, I thought Moulton's you know, um, explanation of why you need a certain level of knowledge, but you don't have to it was really fantastic. And that, it's, you know, obviously anybody doing something and they don't really understand why they've been asked to do it and why it's important, is subconscious, even if they're very willing to please, you're going to get some pushback. So communication and what Morton described there, knowing the, the structure, but not having to be expected to have the skill to optimise it to the most highest level. I thought was a really great way of explaining it. But then on the other extreme, you get people like what Morton said, you know, a designer's got to code. I don't think that at all. And trying to make somebody that's not really interested in coding and forcing them um, you're not going to end up with a great person. But on the other hand, if they understand the process, um, you're going to get a much better outcome, aren't you, John?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's totally true. Um, last question I want to ask the panel before we uh, fade to black here is um, I, I want to ask everybody, uh, if you're a designer, how do you go out and, and find like a good developer uh, to work with and if you're a developer how do you how do you find somebody that's compatible with you as a designer ask uh uh, nick since you've already gone through this process
3: yeah
2: i mean for me it was easier just because i was at at the job before i was doing what i do now i was working with hunter so we kind of just you know we had the process there we noticed that we worked really well together and that was a really easy transition from for us at that point um I mean, from a developer's standpoint, it's really just aesthetics. I mean, I like the way, you know, he's got a certain style that I really like. Um, And that was an easy decision for me, at least. Uh, And for, I mean, for developers, I think that's a a tougher question because it's, I don't know, it gets more complicated at at that point. And, like, I'm very nitpicky when it comes to code. So anytime I hire any, you know, any developers to come work with us, like, I'm looking at their code and I'm like, no. no, it's not good. Like, sorry, I can't can't do that. So, like, I mean, most people aren't as nitpicky as I am, but I think from a designer perspective, um, you really, as long as they can, you know, if you if like you said, if you have the design call where you talk about, you know, all the effects on the actual visual that you've created, and if they can execute on that within, you know, your given amount of time, then I think, you know, that's that's good enough if that works for you.
1: Excellent. Um, Kim, when it it comes to hiring like a complimentary uh, uh, person, like whether it's to a designer needing a developer, developer needing a designer, does it come down to chemistry or, or what sort of things should people be looking for?
3: Particularly if you're independent, I'd say, yeah, of course, chemistry is important. However, that really, I think, is where it keys in that maybe you don't need to know every detail, but you at least need the high-level understanding about what the other person does. So, for example, if you're a designer and you just need a developer who is going to help you with you know, whatever your WordPress uh, back-end piece is, you at least need to have that high-level knowledge to know not. not the levelers, that they didn't build a theme where every single item on the sidebar was an H1, so all of a sudden you've got 20 H1s, right? You need to at least know the, the, what you're hiring for at that level, even if you don't know all the details. Same with a, I would help. same with a developer. You need to know just enough to talk to a designer to know that what they're going to design has a friendliness for accessibility, for example, so they're not going to put these weird, funky colors together that all of a sudden you blow up all your accessibility. So I think it just comes down to shared language there and understanding enough. And then, you know, then you need the chemistry. That's the second piece.
1: So what I'm taking away is is definitely, like, if if that person that you're, you know, pulling in, they have to have kind of the shared, like, knowledge of what works on the web. Mm-hmm. Morton, any tips uh, for, for pulling in like a complimentary person, uh, designer or developer?
0: Expect to spend some time working on this. <laughs> it's not easy. It's like finding a business partner, right? Uh, from my experience, what uh, works best is try. You know, Find someone whose work you like or ask around to find someone whose work uh, is... Uh, appreciated or recommended and then from there test see if it works try to do a small project together and be ready to run into challenges and then assess is this a challenge because we can't work together or is this a communication problem or you know or do we need to do things differently and invest time in relationships um it's no different from working in a big company. Whenever you get a new co-worker, you have to go through all these learning steps to figure out how it works. The only difference is if you're a freelancer or you're a small company, you have more freedom, but there's usually more at stake. So yeah, just take recommendations, look at people's work, have conversations with them, sit down before you start any project, just sit down with them and say, okay, what are you know, how do you think about these things what are your values how do, how do you see the world is all this stuff going to work together uh, w- you know when do you get stressed out uh, how do you want things to be handled just find people who resonate with you the other thing is there are people in our industry who are, incredibly good at their jobs they are also in high demand and everyone wants to work with them Uh, we have like in the vancouver area there's one person who's excellent at e-commerce and the first thing everyone does when there's an e-commerce project is go to him and say hey let's do this and he's like what are you crazy i have a thousand other things that are happening right um one of the things that can be beneficial, but it's a bit of a higher risk, is to, instead of going for the people who are well-established and successful already, try to find up-and-coming or up and coming or rising stars in the field. That might mean you have to help them grow. And helping freelancers grow may also mean they, once you've helped them grow to a certain level, walk away with your clients. So it's a you know risky endeavor, but it also may result in great things. And- we work in open source. The whole philosophy of open source is to stand on top of other people's shoulders and then help other people up. And that's how you do it. You find someone who has great raw talent and you help them build a career out of it. And then maybe if it works well, you should just join and become a company together so that you don't have that risk of people running away with your clients.
1: That's very well said, and 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 one of the things that that I look at when you're talking about say like web agencies, you know, if a person isn't a partner, I, I think everybody does leave after you know three to five years because they can't just stay stagnant. in, in the same thing, the people do grow and evolve over time. And and another great thing that that you said that I want to key in on is is when you're evaluating a person, you know, find out like who they are and, and do they see the world in a similar way. And start with a small project, small projects or uh, one that's not like, you know, overly um, complicated or, you know, don't throw them in the deep water first. <laughs> yeah. Uh, find something that you can kind of evaluate just how they work together. Um, that's a great way to start. And Jonathan, any thoughts on uh, finding a complementary uh, person, whether a designer or developer? How do you evaluate
4: um not really i I think both you and morton have really covered the basic things it's not going to be easy and you're you are going to be looking at quite a few people aren't you and like you said you know the obvious thing is not to throw me in the deep end unless something's blown up and you've got an alternative um it's best to try out some small projects isn't it john
1: I think that's the best way to start. And then, you know, if if you guys like have good chemistry and, you know, the work is good, then you just continue on. And and that's how you establish uh, working relationships. Uh, with that, I think we're coming to the conclusion of this episode. So uh, everybody, let us know where to find you, anything that you want to promote. Uh, and Nick, where do we find you?
2: Uh, probably the best place is on Twitter. Uh, it's just Nick underscore Meeker. Um, you can also email me from my website, uh, nickmeager.com. Uh, I also just created a startup. If you guys want to check that out, it's oh, cool. uh, inquire.com. Uh, it's not launched yet. We're in the process of getting beta users, but it'll be launched probably within the next three to four weeks. So. Okay. And how do you spell that? Uh, inquire. I-N-s, uh, I N K R O A.com.
1: Okay, cool. We'll put that in show notes. Thank you. Uh, Kim, how do we find you? Anything, uh, you want to promote?
3: Uh you can find me on Twitter, Kim Shivler. You can find me at White Glove Web Training or How to dot an com. And pretty soon I'll be rolling out my umbrella site, kimshivler.com to tie it all together.
1: Sweet. <laughs> Morton, how do we find you? Anything you want to promote?
0: Uh you usually find me on Twitter at Morton, because that's my name. That's M-O-R-10. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. I write stuff on LinkedIn Pulse and the LinkedIn Learning uh, blog. And I have a website called moreten.com. And of course, I have a ton of courses you should all watch at uh, LinkedIn Learning and Linda.com. so.
1: Excellent, highly recommended. Jonathan, how do we get a hold of you? Anything that you want to promote?
4: Oh, it's quite easy, folks. Um, I'm normally on Twitter every day periodically and that's at jonathan denwood i think there is only one on twitter i have to check that really or you could email me i do answer my email um not straight away but obviously if you've got a question um want some advice um i will reply if you email me and just to finish off just give a out. Um, or also go to their website, our sponsor, Liquid Web. They've been very generous over the, com- the past few months, and their support has been very beneficial to the podcast, hasn't it, John?
1: Definitely, yes. And remember, you can go to liquidweb.com slash WordPress, use code WP Tonic 33 you get 33% off your first six months, And uh, they are definitely doing uh, a lot of big things with managed WordPress hosting. So check that out. You can find me at my website, which is LockdownDesign.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Lockdown Underscore, for the WP Posse in effect. We want to say peace out and get your dose. Thanks for listening to WP Tonic, the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week.